Ranieri and Co. This episode contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. Dear Mr. Andrews, a vital but often overlooked cultural value of our great country is that floor numbering in Australian buildings follows the scheme ground one, two, three, and not one, two, three. In 2007, a concerned constituent wrote a letter to the then Federal Minister for Immigration and Citizenship, Kevin Andrews. The Australian manner of floor counting has been credited as the single most important factor in the rapid and intuitive adoption by Australian science students of the counting from zero technique. The letter was printed in Melbourne's daily newspaper, The Age. The technique is present in nearly every computer program and the multi-billion dollar Australian ICT and biomedical industries could not function without it. I have to admit, I read this twice before I realised it was a joke, a lovely piece of Australian political satire. This isn't a pedantic protest about how we number floors in multi-storey buildings. It's actually having a go at the ridiculousness of the political debate preceding the 2007 federal election. We seek a commitment that a coalition government by the Australian people on November 24 will demonstrate that it cares for Australian lives, Australian students, Australian traditions and Australian industry. The then Conservative government was proposing a cultural values and citizenship test for new migrants to ensure they better integrate into Australian society. The test included questions about our parliament, democracy and cricket. It raised the issue of what it means to be Australian in a multicultural society. By embodying the Australian floor counting idiom in the Australian cultural values test. Like many Australians at the time, the author of this letter thought the test was offensive. It was signed... Sincerely, Julian Assange, Vice President Emeritus of the Melbourne University Mathematics and Statistics Society. Anybody who relies on lying to maintain their incumbency has something to fear from media more broadly, but the WikiLeaks model in particular. I think it's changed things forever. WikiLeaks' vision was that it would be what Assange called an intelligent agency of the people. His entire attitude was basically, I'm a hacker, I have these powers, how can I use my powers for good? Few people have had an impact on the history of this century quite like Julian Assange, and few have been as polarising. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service. Assange has sparked fierce debate about the power of information over the right to know and the right to keep secrets. WikiLeaks didn't just come out of the blue. As we've seen in this series, it was at least 20 years in the making, a convergence or collision of new technology and politics. There's Assange's musings in the international subversive magazine, and a reminder, we're using an actor to read his words. I hate being powerless. Ingenious programs such as Sycophant and the Trivial Files Transfer Program, which Assange wrote in his hacking days. I think it all kind of grew out of the hacker movement in a way. The desire to protect people exposing human rights abuses with rubber hose, providing deniable encryption to informants. Just a spreadsheet, just a database program, shifted the power balance between human rights workers and oppressive regimes. And an overriding desire for information to be free. Discover how things worked and share it 
building something out of the love of creation and intellectual competition. Ideas being tossed around on the cypherpunks mailing list. Multiple things come out of the list, but one is WikiLeaks, which is this decentralised, open approach to public information. Technology which levelled the playing field, giving increased power to an individual. WikiLeaks is a retrospectively obvious idea, but the execution, obviously, it took um, someone with a mind like Julian's to make it happen. In 2001, Julian Assange wrote an updated introduction to his and Sulet's reprint of Underground. It starts with an Oscar Wilde quote. Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. Five years later, Assange did just that. He provided the mask by way of encryption, that central pillar of cypherpunk, a mask to conceal the identity of anyone wanting to spill the beans on government secrets. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. This is Motherlode, a Rainierian co-production. I'm Greg Muller, a journalist from Melbourne. I've been investigating computer hackers in my hometown, including WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. In past episodes, we explored his early hacking days. Now, we look at a period in his life when he'd moved on to something more powerful. In this episode, we hear from some of the people closest to Assange and explore his motivations to disrupt the status quo. A new political culture was emerging, and it didn't come from protests in the streets. It was happening in people's bedrooms, online chat rooms and mailing lists around the world. No wonder most of us missed it. Looking back, it becomes clear what a pivotal moment in our history this was. Loading final episode, Intelligence Agency of the People. My name is Daniel Matthews. People call me Dan. My formal title is Doctor. Uh, Dr. Daniel Matthews, I'm a senior lecturer at Monash University in the School of Maths. Daniel was with Julian Assange when WikiLeaks started. Yeah, um, founding member, I guess I would say. Fellow students at Melbourne University. We were both um, studying maths at um, Melbourne Uni in the early 2000s. We were both involved in the, in the Student Society, the Melbourne Uni Math Student Society, which was kind of a fun, sort of nerdy organisation, still around today. I was president of the society one year. Julian was vice president another year. I guess we got to know each other through that. Julian had an idea to start a puzzle hunt, modelled on one at the Institute of Technology in Boston. A fun event with lots of puzzles, often extremely difficult. Things like codes, things like logic puzzles, things like puzzles where you don't know what the puzzle is. It's a very meta, very fun, highly nerdy form of entertainment. And uh, I think basically it was Julian's idea that maybe mums, you know, we should have an Australian version of this. That's the Melbourne Uni Maths and Stats Society. He basically was the organiser for the first one. Organised in a very loose sense. It was sort of all over the place, but it's pretty fun. One of the most challenging aspects of this hunt was data sifting, going through heaps of raw material in order for the puzzle to make sense. 
Sound familiar? Mums publishes a magazine called Paradox, and there's an article about Assange's hunt in a 2010 edition. It describes WikiLeaks as a political version of this hunt, but with social implications. Assange titled his puzzle hunt, Who Hit Howard? This was the scenario. John Howard seems to have been vaporised while giving a secret speech at Melbourne University. Who was behind such a dastardly act and why? John Howard was Australia's Prime Minister at the time. What, if anything, does it have to do with grave robberies in marginal electorates? Who's the prime suspect? A mysterious cult of Hessian-wearing bards, Alan Gilbert. Then Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne Uni. A bunch of crazed physicists or something else entirely. Enter a team in the famous Melbourne University puzzle hunt and find out, if you dare. Julian Assange was enrolled in mathematics and physics, but politics infiltrated everything. When he attended a physics conference in Canberra as a student, he cringed at everyone there walking around with a free conference bag which had the Defence Science and Technology Organisation logo on it. Snivelling, fearful conformists of woefully, woefully inferior character, he wrote on his blog. Assange quit uni in 2005. He had bigger fish to fry. But he still turned up at the odd social event. Imagine, as a member of Mums, getting an email like this from the former vice president. Are you interested in being involved with the courageous project to reform every political system on earth? And through that reform, move the world to a more humane state? WikiLeaks, a project I've been working on, is in the middle of an exponential media cascade. It was a call for volunteers. We need help in every area. Adminning, coding, sysadminning, legal research, analysis, writing, proofing, manning the phone, standing around looking pretty, even making tea. To radically shift regime behaviour, we must think clearly and boldly. For if we have learned anything, it is that regimes do not want to be changed. Like the cypherpunks Timothy May and Eric Hughes, Julian Assange wrote his own essay in December 2006, a couple of months after launching WikiLeaks in October. We must think beyond those who have gone before us and discover technological changes that embolden us with ways to act in which our forebearers could not. His own manifesto, if you like, called Conspiracy as Governance. It's a pretty heavy-going piece of writing, but it does show a conviction to the cause Assange is now famous for. Those who are repeatedly passive in the face of injustice soon find their character corroded into civility. And a belief that power always needs to be checked. Most witness acts of injustice are associated with bad governance, since when governance is good, unanswered injustice is rare. Yeah, that's often been regarded as a manifesto and um, interesting case. There's some people online who have sort of taken it as like, oh, it's just this work of genius and, uh, you know, this completely incomprehensible thing that like inside, if you just decode this genius, it's a wonderful idea to change the world. I don't think it's that. I think it's like a combination of sort of just ideas of liberal democracy, like about information flows and how they can improve the world together with a sort of more hacker mindset that, you know, um, regards uh, a more regards states and power and corporations in a more antagonistic way, combative way. As you know, they're the enemy. They're because they're prone to surveillance, and we should try to stop that. First, take some nails, conspirators, and hammer them into a board at random. Then, take twine, communication, and loop it from nail to nail without breaking. 
Call the twine connecting two nails a link. Unbroken twine. But then, like, just shoehorned into like the idea of graph theory, which is you know this pure maths theory, which is sort of you take points and you connect them by lines, and you think about the different ways they can be connected, and they can describe all sorts of things like computer networks, social networks, any any way that things are connected. Mathematicians say that this type of graph is connected. Information flows from conspirator to conspirator. And uh, I think he talks about putting pegs into a pegboard and connecting them or something. Not every conspirator trusts or knows every other conspirator, even though all are connected. And you can see this come to life with WikiLeaks. Using this cypherpunk-inspired technology, the publisher doesn't know the identity of the whistleblower. They are still connected, however, but this way, the source can't be compromised. And always the optimist, Assange finishes his manifesto like this. We will see how new technology and insights into the psychological motivations of conspirators can give us practical methods for preventing or reducing important communication between authoritarian conspirators, ferment strong resistance to authoritarian planning, and create powerful incentives for more humane forms of governance. Conspiracy as Governance was published on Julian Assange's blog called IQ, Interesting Question. He deleted it in 2006. It's idealistic, technical, political, funny and philosophical, much like the international subversive magazine 10 years before, but less about hacking and now clearly with a focus on political change. It starts with a 1910 quote from a German anarchist and peace activist, Gustav Lander. The state is a condition, a certain relationship between human beings, a mode of behaviour. We destroy it by behaving differently toward one another. There's a post called Black Hawk Down, White Wash Up, a description of the wank worm and the beginning of hacktivism. The Fermi paradox gets a mention. Why isn't there any evidence of aliens considering the high expectation they exist? This is described through the lens of runaway consumerism. What do guitars, lollies, lipstick, Tamagotchis, padded bras, pornography, movies, opium, EverQuest, and 98% of any Australian newspaper have in common. They are all technologies of emotional manipulation which distort our perceptions for the benefit of their masters. There's posts on philosophy and mathematics. It has often been said that mathematics is the cheapest university department to run. For all one needs is a pencil, a desk, and a waste paper basket. This is not so. Philosophy is cheaper still since in philosophy, we do not even need the basket. And an entry describing the time he accidentally stumbled across 900 Christians at a conference in Canberra. He called himself... The village atheist, brooding and blaspheming. A woman he met apparently said to him... Oh, you know so much, I hardly know anything. He replied... That is why you believe in God. Ouch! Assange doesn't appear to suffer fools lightly. I spent days reading through this blog. It made me laugh, scrunch up my face in confusion, be inspired and sometimes appalled. One post caught my eye. It's called The Non-Linear Effects of Leaks on Unjust Systems of Governance. The more secretive or unjust an organisation is, the more leaks induce fear and paranoia in its leadership. Since unjust systems, by their nature, induce opponents, mass leaking leaves them exquisitely vulnerable. Only revealed injustice can be answered. For man to do anything intelligent, he has to know what's actually going on. There it is. And reading it now, it's obvious what's coming. It was under our noses all along. The stage was being set for an anonymous, electronic, encrypted dead drop. WikiLeaks.
I had the right house because of the band. Oh, yeah. How are you? You've been travelling so much. Tea, great, thank you. Julian called in, we made tea and avocado toast, and then he said he had this uh, idea of starting a wiki. I visited John Shipton at his rural house outside Melbourne. He was welcoming and thoughtful. It was a very simple house, almost minimalist, lots of space, clean benches, no clutter. I didn't know what wiki was, but I didn't betray my ignorance and just listen. When the WikiLeaks website first went live, it was registered in John's name. John is Julian's father. I just guess the reasoning was that Julian was travelling constantly all over the world, starting WikiLeaks and his other interests, and I assume that was the reason. Did you have any idea of perhaps what you were signing up to? I guess looking back now, 15 years later? No, uh, I didn't. Generally don't interfere with people's ambitions or desires. I think I remember reading William Blake's poem uh, where he says that uh, to destroy another's ideas is the same as murder. You know, I just try to not do that. John was being that supportive dad and didn't see it as his role to question his son's vision. Older people sort of like to think they know better, I imagine, and younger people like to think they know everything. (laughs) For fuck's sake, where where do they meet, you know? (laughs) He soon got on board, though. Back then, you know, the fullness of the idea of a wiki and mass analysis producing purified information, the fullness of that struck home, but the capacity of the internet uh, combination of leaks and holding documentation permanently available as a library uh, and a really searchable library, it's not at all clumsy like a traditional library. And John thought WikiLeaks provides not only access to secrets, but an insight into how the world of international diplomacy really works. You can look up the diplomatic documents and get an evaluation, a historical evaluation, you know, which is practical effects. You can get to know the evolution of policy and those who have gone to participate in it, so you can be, to a certain extent, as educated as the members of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but with WikiLeaks, and you can make yourself as aware as they are, and I imagine they don't like that, although a retired diplomat uh, told me a couple of years ago that... uh, they use the site. Fuck sake, can you believe that? You know, they hate him and they use the site. It's just extraordinary. The simplicity of John's house hides a hectic schedule. In the driveway is a van with free Assange messages all over it. John now runs a global campaign to free his son. 
He's constantly on the move. We work together to bring Julian home to his family, to his children, and to give the Australian government the courage to stop assisting this by doing nothing. He'd just returned from the UK and was preparing to head to Norway. There's talk of nominating Julian for the Nobel Peace Prize. A wiki that was founded on leaks that were held on the internet and as a consequence a vast range of contributors could analyse and place their analysis on the internet so you would get knowledge and as a consequence of having knowledge you would have freedom. Assange sent another email to participants of the Mum's Puzzle Hunts. It was a receptive audience, after all. Courageous people, intelligent people to help develop and run an international leaked document analysis and essay competition. WikiLeaks is only new, but we have already broken major stories in the international press. Our problem? We're drowning in leaked documents. We can create a much more interesting competition a competition where teams of bright people form an engine for justice. Daniel was one of those students attracted to the idea. Yeah, I was um, friends with him at the time and um, regularly sort of discussing matters relating to WikiLeaks. And um, as it was set up, it was a sort of, you know, a uh, quite interesting adventure. And I guess I was involved um, in various ways from 2006 until about 2008. So very much the early days before they were famous. I think that Melbourne and Melbourne Uni around that time was a place where there was this sort of, you know, people were happy to throw around ideas. There was a lot of uh, intellectual discussion and ferment and uh, maybe it's not so surprising that some interesting things came out of it. Author and financial journalist now specialising in cryptocurrency, David Gerard. WikiLeaks is a retrospectively obvious idea, but the execution, obviously, it took um, someone with a mind like Julian's to make it happen. We heard from David last episode. Remember, Julian Assange agreed to host David's anti-Scientology and highly risky website on the free public service internet provider, suburbia.net. David thinks the seeds of WikiLeaks were planted here. Julian had all this stuff there, like, he had other stuff there, like rubber hose, you know, um, stuff like that. He was thinking in terms of hacker tools where he would use his particular talent, which was computers and cryptography, to good ends. Doesn't strike me as the sort of person who'd ever just take a million dollars to work at Facebook, making ads more intrusive, you know. He'd want to do something. He said himself that running the Scientology site in particular and dealing with continuous threats from it, I'm pretty sure he giggled every time he got another legal threat. He said that that made him think that WikiLeaks was possible. But his entire attitude was basically, I'm a hacker, I have these powers, how can I use my powers for good? And that's something that, you know, has become increasingly relevant as the surveillance state has grown and, you know, to some extent I think has been totally vindicated, you know. You know, probably the apotheosis was uh, Ed Snowden in 2013. 
Ed Snowden was a whistleblower on a monumental scale. Formerly employed by the CIA and the National Security Agency, the NSA, Snowden leaked millions of documents which revealed how extensive US government surveillance programs were. His leaks also included up to 20,000 secret Australian intelligence files. Snowden then sought asylum in Russia. Which just sort of laid bare everything that the state was going, just horrendous, you know, to um, surveil everything. Daniel remembers Assange's politics when WikiLeaks started. I mean, the sort of things that he was always interested in were like the, I guess you'd say, anti-communist stuff. And the sort of people that he would often talk to, people like your Solzhenitsyn, your Sakharin, the Soviet dissidents, you know, extremely courageous and uh, wonderful heroes, basically. The sort of idea of heroic individual against uh, authoritarian states, that's, you know, certainly something that, a trope that figured in his thinking a lot. Um, but I, I mean, very difficult to categorise. I mean, not a sort of person I would be able to categorise as uh, left or right in any traditional sense. The view that, you know, at the international level, the world is basically a mafia game um, and, you know, international relations are just a place where morality is thrown out the window and that's bad. There was something else happening in the final decades of last century. It sounds obvious now, but back then it was new. Things like the Vietnam War, the anti-war movement against that war, you know, that was a time when a lot of people sort of discovered to their shock that, you know, the government was lying to them about what was being done in their name. Whereas by the time uh, you get down to, you know, the Iraq war, arguably by that time, more people are like, oh yeah, the government lies, so what? And then the question is, what do you do about it? You know, WikiLeaks is partly a, an answer to, you know, what can you do? Well, maybe this is something. I guess the first big one was uh, from the US, from uh, Guantanamo Bay, WikiLeaks, I think it was 07, 2007, released um, basically the operating manual, the standard operate, operating procedures for uh, Camp Delta, Guantanamo Bay. For almost a decade, it's been one of the world's most controversial prisons. I mean, the release of classified information we condemn <coughs> in the strongest possible terms. This also included information on Australian prisoners, David Hicks and Mamdu Habib. There were allegations of human rights abuses happening at Guantanamo Bay. The 700 WikiLeaks cables contained files on most of the inmates ever held at Guantanamo, including the only two Australians to call at home. It's one thing to have allegations circulating around the media. It's another to have the manual in front of you where you can see what the issues are. The leaks kept coming more than anyone expected. It's a very sort of uh, empowering thing to have a document in front of you that's, uh, you know, yeah, something from a Swiss bank or a, the um, US military, and, well, you, you should do something about it. Um, yeah, you, you, know, you go sort of, wow. The motivation of the hacker or hacker ethic still resonated in the skeleton of WikiLeaks. Sharing, not damaging. Indeed, three things have been a bit of a mantra now for WikiLeaks supporters. One, no one was harmed due to any leaks. Sound familiar? Remember this remark from the judge in episode four. Fortunately for you, no harm or any consequences appears to have befallen the operators of any of the systems which you targeted. Two, nothing was hacked. Well, they didn't need to. Whistleblowers came to them. And finally, asking for and receiving leaks is not espionage. It's journalism. There's an ongoing debate as to whether or not WikiLeaks is journalism or publishing. My journo friends are split on the issue. There are echoes of the hacker ethic here too. Share everything. That's akin to publishing in a way. But is it journalism? Margaret Simons, freelance journalist, author and journalism academic. 
Margaret Simons is one of Australia's most respected journalists and media commentators. I mean, it's a nice argument about whether WikiLeaks is journalism or isn't, but there is enough overlap for it to be very concerning to pursue WikiLeaks for doing things which journalists do. There is enough overlap between what Assange has done and what WikiLeaks has done and what, say, the New York Times or The Guardian might do um, for it to be extremely worrying to pursue WikiLeaks and its sources. Um, I do think that if you pursue WikiLeaks, it's going to be very difficult to argue against pursuing mainstream journalism outlets. You know, it changed journalism. Julian Assange, I think, got a Walkley for impact on journalism. The Walkleys are Australia's most prestigious journalism awards. In 2011, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange won the award for outstanding contribution to journalism. The judges said, WikiLeaks applied a new technology to penetrate the inner workings of government to reveal an avalanche of inconvenient truths in a global publishing coup. And that absolutely sums it up. We could argue endlessly about whether he is or isn't a journalist. I prefer to focus on the work and say that was journalism, that wasn't. But his impact on journalism has been immense. Things will never be quite the same again. And here, encryption is the key. Cryptographic anonymity. Remember, Justin Warren from the EFA told us about the crypto wars. Was, in fact, uh, strong encryption was classed as a munition. WikiLeaks provided military-grade camouflage. Because it has made it clear that we are always, from now on, I think, going to be just, you know, a second away from somebody walking out of somewhere with a thumbnail drive or whatever the future equivalent is, packed with information. And we've seen that continue with things like the Panama Papers and Pandora Papers and, you know, the the various revelations on tax. And WikiLeaks was the first to exploit that and the first to make that clear. Various other leaking websites have sprung up in the shadow of WikiLeaks. OpenLeaks, GreenLeaks, BalkanLeaks and GlobalLeaks, to name a few. It's a model which is catching on. Justin Warren from Electronic Frontiers Australia. There's an almost gonzo journalism, but more so, aspect to things like WikiLeaks, where there's a a rejection of the the forms and the the structures and the usual way of doing things that traditional journalism would, would put in place. When those structures are seen not to serve the people very well, regulatory capture or a press gallery that just seems a little bit too cosy with the powers that be, that breeds a certain mistrust in institutions. So when people criticise WikiLeaks for not following the same procedures as traditional journalism, part of that's on purpose because it's a rejection of traditional journalism, because of the failings of traditional journalism. There's kind of two aspects to it that I think work together. One is the, the desire to show other people information. Like, I'm curious about this. Other people surely will be. And, like, they have a right to see this information. This information should not be kept private. Um, So particularly when it's transparency or holding power to account, there's that real desire for transparency in in quite an aggressive form. Uh, And then there's the the anti-authoritarian take on it, which is not just about the transparency and, and holding people to account. It's also a mistrust of other authority structures, including journalism. There is nothing more objective than putting the actual source document out there. That's, you know, scientific method and so on. You know, assess it for credibility and authenticity and so on. But that's um, about as objective as you can get. 
Julian Assange has been widely quoted as supporting what's called scientific journalism, that is, publishing direct sources alongside the story. Take one of WikiLeaks' most notorious releases, Collateral Murder. On April the 5th last year, the most shocking vision to come out of the war in Iraq was published by WikiLeaks. In April 2010, WikiLeaks published a video taken on the 12th of July 2007 from a US Apache helicopter gunship. This video shows the killing of civilians in the Iraqi suburb of New Baghdad. A second van came to help and it too was fired on. I must admit, I'd never watched the whole 17-minute video until now. I'd only seen snippets played on various news programs. It's really horrific. The hotel two six crazy horse one eight. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. Spear zero two three ten. Nice. Let's shoot. Thank you. In this attack, a Reuters photographer, Namir Noor Eldin, and his assistant Saeed Shamag were also killed. So collateral murder, I think, was definitely journalism. It was shaped and presented and edited um, in much the same way as it would have been by a television channel or something that had the same material. That's journalism, you know, that's not more straight from the source with no intervention. They did what journalists do. Two months later, WikiLeaks released 91,000 documents we now know as the Afghan War Diaries, which was soon followed by 392,000 documents, the Iraqi War Logs. Fearless reporting indeed. Andy Greenberg, in his book This Machine Kills Secrets, compares these leaks to another notorious leak when Daniel Ellsberg dropped the Pentagon Papers in 1969. These revealed the truth about how the Vietnam War was really going. It took Daniel Ellsberg about a year to photocopy numerous copies before distributing them. At that rate, to release the amount of documents Chelsea, then Bradley, Manning sent to WikiLeaks, it would have taken about 18 years of photocopying. Things had certainly changed, and this trend continues. We're living in times when the scale of leaks is growing, uh, and also their frequency. Scale of leaks, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, in recent years, dropped the Panama Papers. They're 160 times larger than the US State Department leaks of 2010 that WikiLeaks engaged in. So WikiLeaks changed the media. It also changed democracy. Uh, I am John Keane. Uh, I'm professor of politics at the University of Sydney and at the WZB in Berlin. Uh, I spent much of my life, sad life, writing about the past and present and future of democracy. Professor John Keane coined the term monetary democracy, an era we are living in now and exemplified by WikiLeaks. So democracy takes on a monetary form. Many watchdog and barking dog institutions set themselves the goal of exposing secrets about the way organizations work. So uh, there's a lot of muckraking. Muckraking becomes the norm in the era of monetary democracy. So, you know, rorts, 
politicians' expense claims, the way they manipulate media, these become topics of, of leaks. And so, too, does military strategy. As we've seen, WikiLeaks was an instant success. It immediately turned heads on a global scale. There was clearly an appetite for this. WikiLeaks became, for a time, the most talked about political experiment in the arts of publicly probing secretive military power. It positioned itself as a public sentinel. It was a radical form of muckraking. There is going on in actually existing so-named democracies a definite rise of public disaffection with politicians and parties and governments. When WikiLeaks was born, it didn't seem so palpable. It has become intensely palpable. So the attraction to WikiLeaks was motivated by a growing sense among various parts of the population in so-named democracies that the institutions of government were rotting or are already rotten. And that made a leak and then massive leaks of the kind that WikiLeaks managed. It made those leaks appear to be plausible, that um, there was something important, really historically important about them because they exposed hypocrisy, they exposed the dangers of, of secrecy in a democracy. Most of us have seen at least some of the collateral murder video. And most of us didn't see it on WikiLeaks' website. Newspapers ran it on their websites. TV stations ran it on the evening news. I've seen it many times on various programs since. So, who's responsible for me seeing this classified video? WikiLeaks or the local TV station? This becomes an important question. It's called the New York Times problem, and it dates back to a crucial case in 1971. The US government tried to stop the publication of the Pentagon Papers, and it ended up in the Supreme Court, the United States versus New York Times. Professor John Keane. It was a judgment led by Justice Potter Stewart was his name. And if I may, I just read a couple of lines from it because I think it summarises this monitory democracy and helps to explain the founding spirit of uh, WikiLeaks where... Uh, Justice Potter Stewart says, in the absence of governmental checks and balances, the only effective restraint upon executive policy and power in the area of national defence and international affairs may lie in an informed and critical public opinion which alone can protect the values of democratic government. That is a very sharp summary statement of the founding ethos of WikiLeaks and the way that WikiLeaks has fed this trend towards monetary democracy. That was the court case that in the end made it safe, I guess, for the New York Times to publish the Pentagon Papers, is that right? Correct, yes. Uh, It's of historic significance, I would say, in this era of monetary democracy. Another judge on this case, Justice Black, wrote, the press was to serve the governed, not the governors. This case is also considered a victory for the First Amendment to the US Constitution. And again, this is relevant to WikiLeaks. Well, so the First Amendment is obviously the first provision in the American Bill of Rights, and it dates back to 1791. 
I think probably the, the most profound commitment to freedom of speech adopted by any country anywhere in the world. Dr Matthew Collins QC is one of the most experienced media lawyers in Australia. And it's conventional wisdom in the United States, never questioned as being the correct way in which to strike the balance between freedom of speech on the one hand and other rights on the other. It's one of the main defences open to journalists and publishers in the US when it comes to publishing sensitive material. And it's been used by Wikileaks in the past, when the Swiss bank Julius Baer tried to sue following the publication of a leak in 2008. Daniel Matthews. When that bank Julius Baer um, uh, leak came out, um, the only person that uh, bank Julius Baer could uh, find to sue basically was me. So I was like basically served with court documents in my... uh, um, my office at uh, Stanford University at the time, I guess WikiLeaks, we won that case because of the strong, basically, First Amendment protections in the US and uh, further law in California at the time. So why is this relevant now? Well, in the current case against Julian Assange, US authorities argue that the First Amendment is not available as a defence because he's not a US citizen. But Daniel Matthews is not a US citizen either. He was in the US studying for his PhD. Daniel's an Australian citizen, like Assange. Assange's current barrister, Jennifer Robinson, called out this inconsistency in September last year. The United States has actually put in their brief, on oath, that they will consider running an argument in the United States that because Julian is an Australian citizen, he does not benefit from constitutional protections in the First Amendment. It's a surprising proposition that the Bill of Rights would apply differentially, essentially on a race basis. Dr Matt Collins. On the other hand, you know, the United States notoriously um, applies different standards in, uh, when it has control over different parts of the world. So you think of the rendition experience during the uh, Gulf Wars and you think of the uh, continuing atrocities that go on at Guantanamo Bay, freed from the protection of American judicial oversight. Well, there's an interesting distinction drawn in some of the American authorities between mainstream media, they call it freedom of the press, and modern media of communications. And it is clear that WikiLeaks is being treated differentially from legacy media like the New York Times or the Washington Post. We've seen the massive impact WikiLeaks has had on the media, democracy, and now politics. My name's Scott Ludlam. I'm a writer and an activist. One of the things that I work on is the campaign to free Julian Assange. Scott also served as a federal senator for almost a decade with the Australian Greens. In the, in the initial drops, kind of from 2006 through 2011 or so, I think what it proved, not just for the, for the US, but for governments all over the world, was that you had to be really careful the gap between the official line and the truth. Because, you know, states have practised and mastered the art up to a point of stretching the gap wider and wider between the propaganda or the line that you're feeding to your public and the truth and the reality. And what WikiLeaks did was said, ready or not, this is the reality. Anybody who relies on lying to maintain their incumbency has something to fear from media more broadly, but the WikiLeaks model in particular. Professor John Keane again. Its spirit was driven by one of the recommendations of Franz Kafka, the great Czech novelist. And I've often used it to describe Assange and WikiLeaks. When the earth grows cold and people fall asleep 
There are times when a fire has to be lit and someone has to watch. Someone must be there. So despite WikiLeaks being such a disruptive influence, John Keane believes WikiLeaks is ultimately good for democracy for two reasons. The first one is hypocrisy. You know, democracy and hypocrisy um, are not on good terms or should not be on good terms. What do I mean by this? Well, WikiLeaks' vision was that it would be what Assange called an intelligence agency of the people. So the idea is that all power, wherever it's exercised, whether in the bedroom or in the boardroom or on the battlefield, should should be exposed. And double standards um, should be named, called out. Um, Publics should be alerted to um, the hypocrisies of the powerful. Secondly, in order for organisations to function efficiently, they now promote unfettered flows of information. But, here's the contradiction, to the extent that they do that, they make themselves vulnerable to a single individual or to an organised group inside the organisation that using advanced digital tools, copying, uh, digitally spreading, sending, uh, regardless of time, space, barriers, information to others, to the outside world, happens. Like we saw with the cypherpunks, support for WikiLeaks comes from across the political spectrum. Both Labor and coalition governments in Australia have been conspicuously quiet, but individual members of parliament from all sides of politics are speaking out. Indeed, in December last year, the Conservative Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, wrote an op-ed calling for Assange's release. Scott Ludlam. Since I've been involved, which is 10 years this year, it's always been a campaign that crossed political lines in the strangest ways. There's, there's allies in this campaign to free Julian Assange that I have absolutely zero else in common with, people you wouldn't want to share a stage or a platform with on any other matter. It's fair to say WikiLeaks has pissed off all sides of politics. Some people blame WikiLeaks for Hillary Clinton losing to Donald Trump in 2016 after the site published leaked emails potentially damaging her presidential campaign. WikiLeaks, I love WikiLeaks. Other leaked documents led to ClimateGate and gave much ammunition to climate sceptics, corruption scandals in Kenya and Somalia to wrongdoing in international banks. No matter what your ideology, there's something here for everyone. The only common factor is that information needs to be free. These are not people that you would normally see sharing a common, you know, common cause of any kind um, with former Green Senator or with libertarians or with anarchists or with, the ki- or, or with socialists, you know. WikiLeaks is now inextricably connected with the personality of Julian Assange. But that wasn't the original idea. It was a wiki, after all, an open-ended collaborative space. Daniel Matthews. One of the ideas that uh, was bouncing around uh, back in 2006 and so on was an idea for mathematics, um, Bulbarki. So this is a very um, maths thing. Um, goes back to the early 20th century in the sort of... Um, an anonymous collective that um, they didn't put their names to things, they just put the name of Bubaki. And, and of course, being a, a collective, the, the output was prodigious. Um, but, you know, that idea of a, an anonymous collective publishing things 
with some sort of you know, authority and some sort of uh, gravitas. Um, that was the idea. But it's not quite how it worked out. A number of people have told me that this was a problem and led to the many personal rifts. These were regularly reported. Others said it was inevitable because he was the last man standing with resolve to keep poking some pretty powerful bears. John Keane twice visited Julian in the Ecuadorian embassy. And those meetings conveyed to me his uh, steely resolve, his unflinching dedication to embarrassing American power and the power of its sycophants and allies. Someone inclined to anarchism, someone constantly aware of conspiracies and the danger of secrecy. Someone who would never give up and delighting in the incompetence of large-scale, powerful organisations. You know, fuck-ups. This reminds me so much of the international subversives, the way they would taunt system administrators, playfully exploit corporations' incompetence, whether that be a telecommunications company or NASA. His job was to use those to expose the double standard hypocrisy uh, of these organisations and the dangers they posed uh, to uh, flesh and blood uh, people. Charismatic, yes. Calculating, yes. Able to keep secrets of his own, yes. Very aware that um, it's a paradox about secrets. You know, some secrets are necessary in order to expose others' uh, secrets. Uh, My name's Gabriel Shipton. I'm Julian Assange's half-brother. Another person who can speak to character. Yeah, he's he's a very principled person. And, uh, you know, he's that great quote of his where he says he likes to crush bastards. A couple of years after the launch of WikiLeaks, Gabriel realised his brother was onto something big. It was not until uh, they released the reports on, on the Kenyan government corruption that's when I sort of realised that the actual power that WikiLeaks had. That was in 2008, when WikiLeaks published a report on Kenya called The Cry of Blood, Extrajudicial Killings and Disappearances. Two human rights workers who participated in the report were killed the following year. Although no one has ever been charged with these murders, there was widespread suspicion they were targeted because of the report released by WikiLeaks. That same year, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange won a media award from Amnesty International for this report. We knew Julian was, was there and we'd hear reports of people being murdered over these, you know, these revelations. And that's when I realised, probably naively, that, you know, the power that WikiLeaks had, that it had the power to expose uh, these, this criminality and change the world. Gabriel has just finished a movie about Julian and his father's campaign to free him. It's called Ithaca. It's not a revelation to say that Julian has fallen out with many people, such as former collaborators, hacker mates, journalists he's worked with, etc. For this podcast, I've spoken to and read about many people whose relationship with Julian ended badly. Gabriel says this comes with the territory. The personality that is needed in these situations, you know, if somebody's fighting these sort of, for these really strong forces, they have to have a personality that can push back. You know, not everyone's going to like you if you're fighting the US military-industrial complex, you know, that you can't be a Mr. Nice Guy to really make a difference there. I think 
that's often seen as a weakness, but in, in Julian's case, it's, it's definitely a strength and, and he wouldn't be able to have achieved, you know, what, he, what, what he's achieved without having that sort of personality that doesn't take any shit. Julian's father, John Shipton, is someone who always sees the bigger picture. The facts in front of him, that his son's in prison, he believes in his innocence and he wants Julian released, seems to only inform the larger story. You know, I have a comment, a very general comment, on the capacity of Western societies to absorb the genius that they themselves created. John spends a lot of time on the why, and he's developed this theory. Western societies, with the advent of computerization, eventually produced an entire strata of genius, which had fresh insights into the world and into uh, digital life. And there was no capacity within these societies to absorb this strata of genius that they created. So the societies moved against it and began to expel or suborn this cohort of people who had a fresh and brilliant understanding of the the circumstances of uh, surrounding computation and the distribution of information. Not all these people were without options. Eventually, this uh, strata was gradually absorbed uh, into monstrosities like Google and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Their genius was subverted and capitalised and then absorbed under the rubric of uh, those names that I just mentioned. You know, he has this ability to see very far into the future and look at things in, in a global scale and understand things in that sense, and that's how he acts. The great danger is that the people who watch, who light the fires, who keep them burning, who keep watch themselves give up or fall asleep and join a slumbering world, which is, instead of freezing, growing warmer. Motherlode is an original Rainierian co-production, written and researched by me, Greg Muller. Sound design and editing is by Martin Peralta. Executive producer, Lucy Kent, and consulting producer is Siobhan McHugh. And a special thank you to everyone I spoke to for this series, both on and off mic. For various reasons, many people did not want to go on the record, but their contribution was considerable. Such a complex story, so many interpretations, rabbit holes and opinions, personal grievances and varying views. I hope we've done it justice. Please review the series if you can, and if you want to get in touch, you can email us at motherload at rainierianco.com. Thanks for listening.